0: Hello, friends, and welcome to So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute.
1: We are your hosts. I am the Bull Bay. And
0: I am Kirsten Michelle Sells. <laughs> Bay and I are so stoked to bring you this season all about the science behind love, sex, and relationships. So far, we've talked about everything from your brain on love to why we obsess over our favorite television characters to how science and tech are changing our relationships with each other.
1: Okay, so all season we've been talking about science and all different aspects of relationships. I think it's time to tackle the elephant in the room. Which is? Marriage. The ring on the finger. In this episode, (laughs) we are talking to historian Dr. Rebecca Davis about how the institution of marriage as we know it actually came to be.
0: And later, Dr. Jayatri Das will be back to talk to us about what the science world is saying about marriage.
1: Okay, so do you want to get married now?
0: Uh, <laughs> this is so sudden. <laughs> 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 Babe, we work together. Be professional. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, I don't really know what I think about marriage. Both my parents have been married three times. I definitely think that marriage is great if you find the right person. I also think that there's a lot of room in the world for marriage to not necessarily be to one person for the rest of your life. It often isn't that way, whether that was by design or by things not working out, <laughs> not I'm, to sound like a downer. No, <laughs> no, like no, you're I'm going
1: to uh, be Kirsten's translator. Yeah. Nah, son.
0: Nah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a no for me.
1: <laughs> nah, for me, dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it was definitely interesting to understand and know that all the things that we don't talk about, but we know people get married for mm-hmm. status resource, all these different things have always been at play. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to know that, you know, we weren't crazy. We haven't been crazy, but it's also nice to know we're all considering different things. I don't think I'm getting married for money or mm-hmm. titles or anything like that. Um, and it's nice to rethink and, and and assess, you know, these these things personally, individually.
0: Yeah. There are definitely benefits to marriage in many ways, but also, there's a lot of societal pressure. <laughs> like right. Also, a lot of people get married because they're like, well, all my friends are. And uh, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it?
1: Right. And it's nice just to have historical context yeah. to even project into the future. It's like, what is marriage going to look like 50 years from now? Because yeah. these behaviors are going to change and that's going to change how we interact with our environment in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. All these different things were, were really interesting to kind of like delve into and navigate.
0: Yeah. And our first guest is a true actual expert on marriage. So let's introduce our first guest, marriage historian, Dr. Rebecca Davis.
2: Thank you so much for having me me on the podcast.
1: One of the books that you have here in the studio is More Perfect Unions, The American Search for Marital Bliss. Tell us about the findings in the book, uh, your research, and and reflect on that book a little bit.
2: This is a book about how self-styled experts of various kinds taught Americans how to be husbands and wives in the 20th century. And they did that very often through what we know as marriage counseling. And marriage counseling could be something that's called marital counseling or couples counseling, but it was very often less formal than that. It was ministers and rabbis meeting with couples in the weeks leading up to their marriages or meeting with them in crisis counseling afterward. It was social workers at family service agencies, and it was, you know, professional uh, psychologists and psychiatrists in other formats. And it really takes off in the United States in the 1930s and, um, of course, is still around today. So what I found in the book was a surprising concern with heterosexuality. I wanted to know what ministers and rabbis who were starting to get more and more open to psychology, ministers and rabbis said, you know, we need to get a little bit more savvy about how to give counseling. And so they started to read up on social science and psychology. They formed journals and societies, and they started to introduce psychology classes into their seminaries to train uh, rabbis and ministers. And um, so I was really interested, well, what did they think about homosexuality? Because in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, professional uh, psychology was starting to define homosexuality as a mental illness. And that was all sort of happening then. The shift from seeing same-sex desire as either just an aberration or more negatively as a sin was becoming more defined as a uh, psychological problem. What happens by the period that I'm uh, was starting to look at in the 30s, 40s, and 50s was a fear that there was latent homosexuality present, Mm. and that that was explaining people's levels of dissatisfaction with their lives. So what I found, I was looking through the indexes of these journals. This is the nuts and bolts of historical research. It's not a Google search. It's hours and hours in dusty libraries, pulling uh, journals off the shelf, looking at the index. All of the articles in these journals where clergy are trying to learn how to be psychologically more astute, homosexuality is mentioned in articles about marriage. Why on earth were they talking about homosexuality in the context of marriage? This is obviously decades and decades before any sort of national debate over same-sex marriage, and that was not what they were talking about. They were worried about a, a psycho, I guess, a sort of psychoanalytic idea of the latent homosexual. That there were people who had never, according to their, the idea was that people, children have a sort of innate bisexuality, and they're supposed to. This is a sort of psychoanalytic model that children have innate bisexuality, but you're supposed to mature into heterosexuality, and so adult maturity and heterosexuality go together.
1: This was like understood science of that. This time? was the
2: understood uh, mental health sort of baseline of wow. the time. Wow, and so that homosexuality then is means that a person hasn't fully psychologically matured. Their psychosexual development has been "quote unquote" like arrested in a adolescent or uh, stage. So, um, wow. yeah, right, <laughs> I'm in my mind right now. <laughs> so, so then if you say, "Okay, why is this woman um, hesitant about marriage, or why is she?" really dissatisfied with her marriage maybe there's a maybe she has latent lesbian tendencies as they would talk about it so one of the things that has changed that's in the background of all of this is that it's become easier to get divorced
0: I remember seeing something online I don't know the exact date that they were saying but it was like when people say oh people who are maybe like elderly now. Well, in my day, people didn't get divorced like this. It's like, well, women weren't allowed to have their own bank accounts until a certain, I think it was like 1970 something. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And so it's like, it, it really has nothing to do with people being less happy with each other. It's just a matter of logistics.
2: So one of the other things though, that's happened is that this idea that you're supposed to be happy in your marriage had to come along first. So that is also changing. Mm. And so the idea that marriage is about romance, that marriage is a choice that two people make, and that they should expect a certain level of happiness and companionship has been around for about 300 years in any sort of broad way. That doesn't mean that there weren't couples thousands of years ago who loved one another, but the broader purposes of marriage were not mutual compatibility and emotional satisfaction, let alone sexual satisfaction. That's wow. far more recent. And, <laughs> and so that's also then you have that, you have easier divorce options, you have women's increasing economic uh, independence, and then you have all these experts saying, oh, wow, we've got to find a way to keep these people together. And there you have marriage counseling. I'm well,
1: mm. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> wow. Good points. If making the decision about marriage is not financial anymore, what would you say are some of the main factors that you see people are getting married? Like why are people getting married in twenty twenty two?
2: I think marriage still is an economic strategy for a lot of people. I was just listening to a radio story, I think yesterday, about what the student loan repayment reprieve has meant for people in their twenties and their thirties over the last eighteen months or two years or however long it's been. And I think that we can't underestimate the degree to which pooling resources remains a strategy for a lot of people. The acceptance around cohabitation, though, is completely different now than it was, uh, you know, in years past. This idea that you and a person you're, you know, affectionately bound to someone you love, uh, to put it more simply, could live together. I like without, the affectionately
1: bound. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that
2: because sometimes these relationships are sexual, sometimes they're not. Um, but this idea of setting up house with someone because you want to live with them and make a home with them. I think that's still very appealing to a lot of people. I think it's still an economic strategy. I mean, there was always jokes. Uh, I was living in New York City in my early 20s. And there was always this joke that people moved in together so quickly because rent was so high. And it was like, you couldn't (laughs) afford an apartment on your own. I think this idea of building a lasting relationship with a particular individual that will bring you all kinds of community and satisfaction. I think that remains very appealing. We have a legal structure that still privileges marriage, makes it so much easier in so many ways. If you want to have certain parental rights and uh, if you want to have um, certain understandings when you pay your taxes, uh, with Social Security, there are all kinds of ways in which marriage remains economically beneficial. Uh, and just sort of legally uh, simplifies a lot of stuff. If you want to be recognized as somebody's person, Mm. um, (laughs) it's much easier to do that if you're legally married to them.
0: Yeah. And so I know you have a, you serve as a producer and a story editor for a podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. The Sexing History podcast started in 2017, and it was an effort by a group of historians of sexuality to take some of the audio archives of this history and bring them to a wider audience and to tell stories that we don't otherwise hear and to show in many ways how this history is still relevant. Oh, that's wonderful.
1: Yeah, I definitely got to take a listen to that. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, what do you hope your students take away from your teachings and your findings and research?
2: One of my very favorite classes to teach is, a, is an introductory survey course called American Sexualities. And it's... I'm happy to say a very popular course, I had 165 plus students take it online the last time I taught it. And it, what I teach in that course is that all of these things have a history, that the things we might think about when people talk about what's natural or traditional, that doesn't really mean anything to a historian. Historians don't talk about, you know, whether we've lost a tradition. We'd see all these things as ever-changing. So what I hope my students take away from it is, I hope that the next time they hear someone talking about, well, that's not natural or that's not traditional, they have the tools to stop and say, in fact, I think I understand that that's the that's an ahistorical way to think about that question. I hope my students, particularly a lot of my students, are themselves in the process of coming out or they're transitioning, or they have loved ones and family members uh, who are LGBTQ+, um, or they are uh, my students who've had abortions, my students who've had various experiences with using different kinds of contraception. Their students are in the room because something very close to them relates to the topic of the course. And they're there to try to figure out, am I, am I new? Is theres there, is there a history to me or to my loved one or my friend? Um, How do I fit in? Where is my story? Where is my history?
1: What's the answer to some of those questions? Am I new? Where's my history? Where's my story?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I love those questions. And what I tell my students is this, that for, for instance, with trans history, which is a really exciting, there's tons of new work being done on it right now. With trans history, I can talk to them about a person who arrived in Colonial Virginia around 1620, I believe it was 1627-28. And this person changed their name and their gender during the process of emigration. So had been, but also had previously had multiple gender identities prior to emigrating and fought as a soldier, but also worked as a seamstress and would wear the attire appropriate and the hairstyle appropriate and the gender pronouns appropriate to those roles and was a domestic servant uh, in, in, a f- in a female social role in Virginia and got caught in bed with a, with a maid, another indentured servant. And the question was, like, could fornication have occurred? Fornication in colonial Virginia meant sex outside of marriage, and that's especially for indentured servants. The, the landowners... Wanted to control their working population right. and pregnancy mm. really affects the management of your household. I right? feel
1: like we're getting historical tea right now. Yeah, this isn't, this right. Is incredible. So, <laughs> so
2: this person who goes by the name Thomas or Thomasine is brought before the court and basically asked, "Are you man or woman?" And Thomas Thomasine says, "I am both, <sighs> and I've parts of both. I have, you know, and and refuses the question. And there are these invasive bodily inspections." Of them by local women, which was a practice dating back to, you know, Middle Ages in Europe, that mid-w- midwives and the local women would be called upon to um, provide evidence and allegations of impotence and other things like that. So they do this body. There are other people who decide it's up to them to sort of pull up the pull off the bed sheets and inspect Thomas Thomasine's body, um, and ultimately the court rules that this person must wear um, elements of both genders' clothing, right? At the time, there's no androgynous clothing in the mm-hmm. 17th century. There's very f- much females in dresses and and uh, people understood as men in, um, you know, breaches diff- and other clothes. So, And then they kind of go about their life and there's no other record of them. They're not jailed. They're not um, wow. s- expelled from the colony. That's
1: Uh, (laughs) What an icon. Wow. So early. 1627, you said. Yeah, right. 1627,
2: 28. And so I tell my students, so if you feel that your gender is non-binary, if you feel that you are trans, there are people in the past who also felt that. That said, they didn't have the word transgender. There was no sense of trans rights. There was no sense of a broader queerness that would have given someone who a man who desired sex with a man would not have had any social framework, any idea that he had anything in common with this non-binary person. So I, t- I tell my students, I'm a little hesitant to say there are transgender people throughout history. I'm absolutely comfortable pe- comfortable saying there are people who lived outside the bounds of their time's gender norms throughout history.
1: I would ask you, as a historian, how important is it? to have these stories you know uh, documented, saved, shared, and uh, disseminated.
2: What's amazing is that the courts in colonial Virginia, a lot of those records survived. Even in the case of Thomas Thomasine, there are places where the document is so frayed or parts of it have ripped off that you can't you lose part of it. There's a place where Thomas Thomasine describes their body and we only have part of what they said about how they understood their body. So that's a loss, but we, there's so much more now that you can get from these sources from 500 years ago that have been digitized and you can find them um, online.
0: I'm curious, so you expressed to us off mic when when you first got here, something that I found really interesting, which is that people tend to ask you, how do I make a marriage work? Which is not your field at all, right? You're on the historical side of marriage. Is there any research in what you've been doing about how people have answered that question in the past and how it's changed over the, the course you've been looking over?
2: One of the big theories around the mid-20th century was that the more alike you are, in every way except gender, the more likely you are to have a good marriage. So you want men to be manly and women to be feminine, but otherwise, same religion, same race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm better that both either come from rural, rural or both from suburban, you know, on and on and on. And so a whole host of people start to create tests and questionnaires that they give to engaged couples to see, well, before you go to the altar, let's double check that you have a chance of sort of long-term happiness. Wow. <laughs> and psychologists had been working on personality tests by that point. The 1920s is sort of when the first intelligence tests are rolled out, and by the 1930s they've taken some of those questions and others and created personality tests. And they also thought that they could administer modified versions of these personality tests to engaged people to figure out if their personalities were compatible.
1: Is this science? Is that like... Would you consider that science?
2: They considered it science. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice answer. This is a great uh, segue into our our last question, which is, what can you tell us about the very sought-after narrative um, of finding a soulmate? Has there been research on
2: that data history?
1: Great question. (laughs) Thank you.
2: (laughs) It was something that I tried to think about when I was writing more perfect unions, this idea that marriage will bring you this ultimate happiness. And it is both a motivating drive for a lot of people to go out and date and find, uh, you know, a, a partner, but it also becomes a source of a lot of disappointment and frustration. So I don't, I don't, know what it's like today to be going through that. Uh, But it becomes a source of dissatisfaction for a lot of people when they find out that, you know, the honey, as people would, the sort of cliche, the honeymoon Mm -hmm. is over and they have to deal with life as it is. Um, So this idea that there is someone who is a soulmate is probably, I don't actually know precisely, but I'm guessing it's an idea about 100 to 150 years old. In the 19th century, and early 20th, we have lots of examples of men writing passionately romantic letters to other men and then getting married to women and vice versa. And we sort of have to guess about when those passionate relationships were also erotic or, in fact, realized as sexual. But what's clear, what's totally obvious, is that people found passionate intimacy from a variety of people, not just their spouses, and that it was important to them that these friendships were central to how they got through the day. So there are letters from two young men from Michigan who served in the Civil War together. They went all the way with Sherman's army down to Atlanta. And they wrote letters to one another where they referred to one as husband and wife. They talked about their warm, keeping warm together in the tents on the march. And they showed these letters to their sisters, right, who would add postscripts because the families knew each other. So there was no secrecy around this. And then each young man got married. They continued to write letters, but it was, they said, well, maybe don't show your wife this one in some of them. Um, But marriage was the way you went about, for these men, going to the Dakota Territory, getting some land, starting an adult life. Um, But their passionate relationship, their greatest emotional intimacy was with another man. So this much more 20th century idea, and now 21st, that you have one person with whom you're supposed to have your most intense sexual, emotional, uh, co-parenting or co-habiting relationship is all in one person. Is, that's
1: a lot. That's a lot. That's yeah. a lot. It's yeah. a lot.
2: And I think that... So I don't know if people are finding their soulmates more than they used to or, or not, but this very notion is part of the way in which we've moved. We've Our culture has been very negative toward kinship-based models. This whole the whole negative uh, connotation around African-American family strategies that comes out from the 19th century into the debates over social welfare programs in the 20th, that denigration of alternate family forms happens at the same time that people are saying, no, it's just marriage. It's a man and a woman um, in one household raising their children. That's, that's what a healthy household looks like. That's what happiness looks like, and that's where you find your soulmate." is through that rather than through broader networks of kin or a wider number of people with whom you have different
1: kinds of intimacy. Incredible. Wow. Dr. <laughs> Rebecca Davis, thank yes. you for coming in. <laughs> thank so you so podcast.
2: much. It was a real pleasure.
1: Thanks so much to Dr. Rebecca Davis. Now that we have an understanding of where marriage came from, let's talk about cockroaches. Mm -hmm. I say we jump right into our next segment to debrief about the science side of marriage with chief bioscientist of the Franklin Institute, Dr. Jayatri Das for a segment we all know and love called body of knowledge.
0: Hey Jayatri.
3: Hi Kirsten. Hi Bay. Hey, hey. how are you? Good. Good. This is a topic that I am fascinated by because It's a place where the advancement of scientific technology has really changed scientists' perception of relationships in the animal world. So let me tell you a little bit what I mean. So before the advent of DNA fingerprinting, scientists thought that there were lots of species that were monogamous for life. So if we think about what we perceive as marriage as having lifelong relationships with the same mate, um, that, you know, people thought that there are lots of species um, that had that same kind of behavior. But then in the 1990s, we developed the technology to do DNA fingerprinting. Um, Imagine a simple way is just think about how paternity tests work in the courts. right? (laughs) So imagine that we now have the technology to do paternity tests not just you know for humans but for any species and suddenly we realized that all of these animals that we thought you know were you know getting married so to speak or you know being monogamous throughout their life were not
1: <laughs>
3: you, you know, they, we were fingerprinting their offspring and realizing that females were mating with different males so even if you know there's what we call pair bonding between a male and a female that, you know, raise offspring together and spend time together. They still occasionally mate with other animals outside of their bond. And so that really changed the perception of what we think of as monogamy and marriage in the scientific world. And some scientists now are thinking that, well, maybe we had those assumptions beforehand because of our own bias of thinking about marriage from our our human experience
1: yeah this makes me think about the bear sting bears a little bit differently
0: (laughs) i was gonna say every cartoon loves to portray this happy husband and wife fish in the sea yeah looking for their son nemo or whatever and it's like no they probably have like plenty of other people on the side right (laughs) bunch of other fish yeah so to put
3: that into perspective um let's look at mammals first You know, if you look at any two individuals of a monogamous species, they may have made it for life. But if you look at the entire species, not a single mammal species has been definitively shown to be actually monogamous. So even if you look more broadly at thinking about, you know, social monogamy, where you do kind of, you know, maybe hook up with with other animals here and there, it's still only like three to five percent of all the mammal species on earth practice any form of
1: anagabi. Wow.
0: Damn. People aren't ready for that conversation, right? are they? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well hopefully they're having that conversation. Yeah, right. It's important to add. <laughs> That's it's why really we're important. Here. Yeah.
3: Can you give me a few minutes to talk about cockroaches? <laughs> oh <laughs> what? my God, yes. Yeah. Because this, as many <laughs> You know, as I was reading about this, this one species of cockroach just hooked me. <laughs> because I'm so fascinated by how their mating systems work. And it's a species of a Japanese cockroach that are one of the only species that have been found to be truly monogamous. And we know this because after they mate, they eat each other's wings so that they are literally locked into where they live. (laughs) No. Literally tied down. They are literally tied down because they can't leave. <laughs> oh my
1: god. <laughs> Sounds like a toxic relationship to me. I don't know. I don't know. And they
3: eat each other's
0: <laughs> wings. Like right there's lots of examples where like the female might eat the male or things like that. But no, this this is mutual. <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking about is it grasshoppers that the female, like, rips the head off of the male? Or like that praying girl? mantises, yeah. Praying mantises, <laughs> right, yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But this is, yeah, this is a mutual understanding that they're both going to... That doesn't
1: sound pleasant. And it's like, you know, who goes first?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we don't shame what anybody's into here. Okay, yeah,
1: bye. You know. <laughs> yes, this, this
0: Japanese researcher named Haruka Osaki discovered
3: this, um, and, you know, she videotaped pairs of cockroaches and found out that... They literally eat each other's wings and it's probably beneficial for them because they live in these really tight spaces. So, you know, once you've found your mate, you don't need to look anymore. So why not just get rid of your wings by eating them? And then you are a better fit for your house and you don't need to go
1: anywhere anymore. That resonates, right? Because once you're in a relationship, you know, delete that Tinder app. Delete all those <laughs> other things. You know? But so just- man, this is
3: this <laughs> is permanent.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: But there are other examples of animals that practice some sort of monogamy, like prairie voles or another example of a rodent that does this. So I wouldn't classify them too specifically, but this particular behavior is is really unique.
1: Yeah. Because I'm not biting anyone. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Just not going to do that.
0: (laughs) Well, now that we've heard from the science world, we are going to take this time to see what average people are thinking about as it relates to marriage. For this segment, we are going to take to the internet to see what the most popular Google searches are surrounding our episode topic. So this is body of knowledge colon Google autofill. So we went into the old Google and typed in is marriage and let Google fill the rest for us. So the first thing that came up was is marriage for me? question mark Maybe in like 30 to 40 years, right?
1: You know, pairing and <laughs> bonding and, and being with someone. We're still social animals. Mm-hmm. We're asking really, really good questions about monogamy, really, mm-hmm. really good questions about polyamory, but we're social. So, you know, hopefully you'll be around someone or a group mm-hmm. of people until you're, you know, golden years. I mean, so maybe, maybe
3: we learned a little bit about, you know, the history of marriage and how those social pressures influence that kind of a decision.
1: You mm-hmm. know, there's some social pressures. There's always a, a, a grandmom around like... <laughs> You know, I want <laughs> some you kids. Get
0: married. I want some kids. You're already 22. What's going on? <laughs> um. So the Googler engine then told me. Uh. I just wanted to know. Is there a marriage for me quiz? Oh. A lot of people wanted to know this. Is there a marriage for me quiz? There
1: probably is. I don't know.
0: That's kind of interesting. I mean, I bet there
3: are some correlations to like personality traits and you know psychology that predict whether someone is more likely to get married than somebody else.
0: Yeah. And there's like love language quizzes and everything Mm -hmm. where you can find better the way you want to be loved and all of that. But the way that this is phrased makes me think someone's looking for a BuzzFeed quiz. That's Uh, like, tell me your coffee order and I'll tell you if you're going to get married. (laughs) Ice grande. (laughs) Yeah, what is it? P-
1: two pump. No, this is not. I'm just making this up. Oh, ice ground. Yeah, pump? just you're not getting married. Just, sorry. just, just, <laughs> just give me a straight black coffee. That's all I want.
0: <laughs> okay, you're getting married. Then. Yeah.
1: Okay, so moving on, we put into the Google engine: Is marriage religious? <gasps> is marriage religious? Uh, it yes? used to be, right? Probably. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: And yet, you know, we have adopted it as a non-religious custom, right? So there's some definite interplay between how religious norms get integrated into broader culture and you know how that may have evolved from some sort of social
0: benefit of you know long-term monogamy yeah the church yeah right because it was <laughs> at one point a religious thing and now it's just you don't have to be religious you can get married by anybody not a you know not necessarily a clergy person right yeah
1: marriage is a mystery to me
0: <laughs> but certainly that pressure for marriage goes cross-cultural. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> Not necessarily oh, any yes. one religion here. <laughs> yeah, right. Somebody
0: who's not coming from the Christian church.
1: <laughs> Big thanks to Dr. Davis Dr. Das for joining us on this episode of So Curious.
0: And next week will be our final episode of the season. And in true dramatic theatrical fashion, our final episode will be all about ghosting. Because when this season ends, isn't that really just Bay and I ghosting?
1: Yeah, cue the rain. <laughs>
0: This and more on next week's episode. So please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to. Rate us. Talk about how fun we are. Talk about how great my voice is. Talk about Bay, Ask him to rap for you. All those things are true. Yeah. Leave us some messages. We want to know how much you love this podcast.
1: Yeah. And I am the Bull Bay,
0: And I am Kirsten Michelle Sims. And we will see you next week. See ya. Bye-bye.
1: So Curious is presented by the Franklin Institute. Special thanks to Franklin Institute producers, Joy Montefusco and Dr. Jayatri Das. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. The managing producer is Emily Cherish. The producer is Lidliana Green. The lead audio engineer and editor is Christian Cedarland. The editors are Lauren DeLuca and Justin Berger. The science writer is Kira Vayette and the graphic designer is Emma Sager.